0: section twenty two of a short history of france by mary duclos this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami part three chapter four the eighteenth century part two the dearest illusion of the regent was that in his person his illustrious great-grandfather henry the fourth lived again he had cast himself for the part and intended, by much the same means, to restore France to prosperity. The reform of finance was the first step, and here we have seen he tripped. The second way was to change the direction of the kingdom's foreign policy. For the last hundred years the tides of France had set toward Spain, toward Austria, and her policy had been Catholic, and if I may use a modern term, conservative as louis the fourteenth had said when his grandson ascended the throne of spain the pyrenees are abolished il n'y a plus de pyrenees that was in seventeen hundred a score of years later the regent was inclined to re-establish that range of mountains and instead to abolish the channel he exiled the Stuart pretender drew closer to the hanoverian king of england concluded a triple alliance between France, England, and Holland, and in all things attempted to institute a liberal policy. But Philippe d'Orléans had none of the grit, the pluck, the tenacity of the little Bearnais. His good nature, his facile vices, his wit, his liberal ideas may have been a legacy from the great ancestor. What he lacked was the endurance and constancy that sees a thing through. As his own mother said, six fairies were invited to his christening and endowed him with all manner of gifts and graces, but a seventh fairy, whom they had forgotten to invite, added this proviso, that none of them should be of any use to him, or we may add to any one else. He had not, in short, that spice of grim earnestness without which the ship's captain seldom weathers a storm and the liberal policy failed just as the financial reforms had failed and in fact england was the worst enemy of france throughout the eighteenth century sweeping her colonies one after the other into the tom tiddler's ground of perfidious albion taking madras burning pondicherry seizing all that indian empire which law had planned which duplex and le bourdonnais had conquered snatching senegal by surprise next leading her armies to the new world annexing canada quebec montreal acadia the mississippi was no longer french new orleans alone remained the isolated relic of a ruined dream scant wonder if at the end of the century the french fought with gusto to help the americans shake off the yoke of the english pirate i can only see one good thing that fell out and that in the most casual inconsequent way in consequence of the region's change of policy when france broke with spain the government sent back as a piece of returned goods the little spanish princess already imported and being saved up for louis the fifteenth and married the young monarch instead to the daughter of stanislav king of poland kings of poland are seldom lucky this one as usual lost his crown and his young son-in-law of france felt himself in honour bound to wage war upon the german emperor in order that the crown might be restored the two monarchs came to an arrangement happier at least for france king stanislav did not recover his polish throne but he was made for life the duke of lorraine on the understanding that at his demise the duchy should be added to the realm of france stanislav had a romantic and beautiful adoration for his one child his daughter the french queen and he spent the rest of his days in rebuilding the city of nancy making it the most graceful if not the most beautiful city in europe so that his dying bequest might at last be worthy of her and of him this duchy of lorraine was indeed a great acquisition protecting France on her weak-exposed northeastern frontier, and bringing a rich mineral region and a keen, valorous population into the national fold. But it is the only piece of political good fortune which happens in all the long reign of louis XV. The regent had been carried off by a stroke of well-earned apoplexy in 1723, which is the least interesting, the least noble, the least fruitful. I mean from the political point of view, in all the history of France, there was an almost total absence of organized political life. At the close of the reign, France was no longer the first kingdom in the world. England ruled the seas, and in Europe, two new states, Prussia and Russia, by their rapid rise, ambition, and importance threatened the balance of power france was a charming inconsiderable state mighty only in the realm of intellect and art but there admittedly supreme and looked upon by other nations as a sort of earthly paradise where life at least in polite circles was happier than elsewhere the scheme of things will last as long as i said louis the fifteenth and after me the floods will sweep it away après moi le déluge. The age of Louis XV was not an age of glory. Contrasted with the reign of Louis XIV, we see the ugliness of its absurd contrasts and the monotony of its dull frivolity. And yet it was, undeniably, an age of progress. Not in territory and not in wealth, it, too, contributed to the growth of France by the general diffusion of knowledge and the gradual constitution of a public mind. The form of national life was changed. King and court were nowhere, Versailles of no account. And the real king of France, in exile, was perhaps Voltaire. At any rate, Paris had seized and kept the whilom supremacy of Versailles, and in the capital, the Orleans princes kept up an increasing rivalry with the crown. In the eyes of the Parisians, who never forgot how the regent had transferred to their city the seat of power, they and they only were the real descendants of henri iv versailles appeared to them at once odious and old-fashioned while france remained attached to the monarchy as a principle the dissolute ignorant king in his person seemed the degenerate monster of an antediluvian period to those circles which grouped round the duke of orleans and the great financiers were occupied in elaborating the conceptions of the future in seventeen fifty paris is again the centre of france and the intellectual fashions and passions of the hour emanate from a few salons round the seine a sort of league for the commonweal binds together the farmers-general and the great bankers who possess the material wealth of the nation and the men of letters and philosophers who are forming its mind round the supper-tables of the rich financiers the thinkers of france are already preparing a revolution what is our constitution asks voltaire in his siècle de louis XV, a tissue of contradictions wherever we cast our eyes we meet incoherence harsh cruelty incertitude and arbitrary caprice the feudal anarchy exists no more and yet its laws and usages subsist so that french legislation is in a state of intolerable confusion there are as many sorts of jurisprudence as there are towns in france the man who has gained his suit in brittany may lose it in languedoc if there be some semblance of a clue in the maze where the provinces are subject to roman law let us not forget that there are forty thousand roman laws without counting the commentaries but what shall i say he proceeds of those unfortunate provinces which are subject not to law but to local custom there are five hundred and forty different customs in france if we count all the provinces towns and even villages which are exempt from the principal jurisdiction of the kingdom a man who should travel through france in a post and chaise changes the law he is governed by more often than he changes horses customs of a barbarous antiquity maintain the force of law and the ignorant parisian who shall hire and inhabit for a year and a day a house in franche-comte finds himself to his consternation a slave a serf main mortable, incapable of bequeathing his own fortune to his own kith and kin i ask pardon for so long a quotation but how could i show more plainly in so short a space the confusion of french law the dissatisfaction of the public with its hopeless chaos and that universal cry for unity for order and liberty which little by little will bring about a revolution in this age says voltaire we are lovers of perfection let us try to perfect the laws under which we live in such a questioning sceptical libertine age one might have supposed that the nation continually oppressed by the weight of its ill-administered finance would have called to account the authorities responsible but such was the prestige of the monarchy in france that for thirty years the fronde of the intellectual party the intelligentsia as they would say in russia remained so far as practical politics were concerned purely theoretic montesquieu in search of liberty remains almost a conservative voltaire was in no wise a democrat but a constitutional monarchist of a conservative type it was religious liberty it was free thought for which he was ever ready to break a lance it was in the realm of ideas that he was a revolutionist in his youth he had been exiled to england and he returned bringing with him something of the spirit of newton locke and shakespeare exalting recommending and occasionally translating the works of these great men throwing broadcast that fertilizing seed of english poetry english thought english experimental science english constitutional ideas which filled with so vast a harvest the second half of the eighteenth century in france voltaire was a renewal rather than a revolution he spent in fine some sixty years in saying in exquisite terms be clean take your tub open free baths for the poor Be kind, don't burn witches, don't hang protestants, and if a girl have an illegitimate baby or a soldier desert in time of peace, judge them as ye would be judged. Keep well, don't have the smallpox. Believe me, if you are inoculated, it is quite unnecessary. Such were the commandments of Monsieur de Voltaire. The society he dreamed of would have been a perfectly well regulated and disagreeable despotism much as m faget has observed like the first french empire with all the glory left out a world in which the sole important things would be good health success and power excellent things in their way louis xiv would never have believed that for thirty years you could openly and publicly call in question the existence of god while continuing to respect the government of the king Yet it is only towards 1750 that the constitution of the monarchy is seriously and definitely criticised. Fifty years ago, writes the Marquis d'Argenson in his memoir, the public took no interest in politics. Today, even in the provinces, everyone reads the Gazette de Paris, everyone has an opinion. And again in 1759 he says, A philosophic wind of free, anti-monarchical government has stirred us all, and it is possible that this government may take form in our minds and come into actual being on the first opportunity. Perhaps the revolution may take place with less opposition than men have supposed, nay, on the contrary, be greeted with applause. Meanwhile, Voltaire records, towards 1750 the nation, tired of literature of the opera of jansenism began to take an interest in the corn laws about the same time in seventeen fifty five appeared the first pamphlet to fall from rousseau's pen the discourse on inequality among men this last is indeed a date if the seventeenth century has been named the century of louis the fourteenth we might well call the eighteenth century the age of Voltaire and Rousseau. Voltaire, the apostle of reason, Rousseau, the prophet of nature. Voltaire had the advantage of knowledge and length of days, but the little man from Geneva was the master of the age. Instead of attempting Voltaire's mild reforms, he sought to reorganize society on a different system, in fact, to shatter it to bits and remold it nearer to the heart's desire. All is good, said Rousseau, when it leaves the hands of God. Man is born virtuous. The social convention has corrupted him. We must therefore destroy society as it exists to-day. It is but a pact made between men for their convenience. Since it is no longer convenient, let us renew the social contract. Rousseau is a native of Geneva, the descendant of French Huguenot who in the sixteenth century had been compelled to flee their country for conscience sake we might almost say that rousseau's contrat social was their revenge it is the result and the resume of the political theories elaborated by the protestant jurists of geneva more than once in these pages i have drawn your attention to the deep republican marrow of the reformed religion the huguenots in exile wrought their theories to a finer point and while french catholicism more and more italianate with the process of centuries arrived at an absolute conception of government an autocratic monarchy which regarded the people merely as a possession and attribute of the king the jurists of geneva declared equally absolute the sovereignty of the people the idea that the real fount of all authority springs from the people is a very old idea in France. Kings reign by popular suffrage. So Milan de Dormont, Chancellor of France, had laid down the law in 1380. Nam et sicentiis degent, reges regnant suffragio populorum. End of section 22.